I gotta start with the story. I'm driving along the road, okay? I have my AC on blast, I'm listening to my music, and I'm feeling good. My driveway's coming up, so I flick on my turn signal. I get ready to get into the turn lane, I look over, there's a truck beside me. Okay, it's the road, that's normal. I keep driving, I go to get over, and the truck is still beside me. The driver, rather than waiting patiently for a chance to get over, decided he wanted to drive in the turn lane. And so I missed my turn. I had to drive past my driveway, and I can remember it clear as day. I slapped my steering wheel, and I was like, are you kidding me? What are you doing, dude? And as I looked for a spot to turn around, I glanced over at him, and I remember thinking, I hope you get a flat tire on the way home. And I know, I know, that wasn't the nicest thought to have. But anybody who has been driving for more than two weeks understands what it's like. You're in traffic, and you're trying to get somewhere, and you get cut off. Or you're waiting for a parking space, and then the car backs out, and another person comes and whips in really quick. And in times like that, it's easy to just wish a little bit of ill will on the other person. Like, I hope you get a speeding ticket or something. And we laugh at little stories of road rage like that because they're sort of humorous when someone tells us. Uh, but honestly, situations such as that, I think, go to reflect the general mindset of people. And that's that we as a society like justice. If somebody does something wrong, we think that they should receive the appropriate penalty. Somebody shouldn't just be able to get away with something wrong. If someone is all the time mean and rude and they're just the overall jerk to other people, well, then we have little sayings like, hey, you know, karma, it's going to come back around. Or I hope you get a taste of your own medicine. And all these little sayings and idioms like that, they just go on, again, to show that we like justice. We, we don't want mercy. We don't want to see someone get away with it. If somebody does something wrong, they should be punished. And that's a fact. Or is it? Because there was actually somebody in the Bible who seemed to have a similar mindset, but God had some words to say to him. And through extension, I think he has some words to say to us. We're going to take a look at that today. Over the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Chris has been taking us on a study through the Minor Prophets. There are 12 in total. They're the small little books in the back of the Old Testament that we pretty much never read, unless our devotional plan says to. Uh, they're not minor because they're insignificant, but minor just in their length. Uh, in this current series, we're looking at the first six, and a little bit later down the road, we'll look at the latter six. Week one, we looked at Hosea. We talked about how God continues to show love to his children despite their idolatry. Week two, we looked at Joel, and we talked about how do we respond in life when we're just hit with locust plague after locust plague or negative situation after negative situation. We've looked at Amos and Obadiah. And if you guys have uh, not had the chance to be here on Sunday mornings, I encourage you to go back and to listen to those on our website. But today, I have the opportunity of taking us uh, through a look at the book of Jonah, the fifth minor prophet. And when I say that name, you probably have some images come to mind. A man who was tossed overboard, is swallowed by a giant fish. If you haven't read the book, that does happen, so sorry for the spoiler. But that's not exactly what the book is about. It occurs... But lots of the key takeaway points occur on dry land, far away from the inside of an aquatic animal. But we'll get to all that later. We're going to start reading in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. If you say, oh man, Perry, I forgot my Bible. That's okay, because we're going to have the words on the screen behind me. And if you say, oh, it's not that I forgot it, I just I don't have one. 
that's okay too because we have free Bibles right over there in the back by the Connection Hub on a stand. You can just grab one on the way out, take it home with you, keep it. We want everyone to have a copy of the Word of God. So, Jonah 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Imitai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And so the story begins by introducing us to our main character, a prophet by the name of Jonah. Uh, God commissions him. He says, I have a message for you to go deliver. And this is pretty normal. This is the pattern that we see for prophets in the Old Testament. God calls someone and he says, go to this particular person or particular people group and give them my message. But in the third sentence of our story, we already see a deviation from the common rule. We see Jonah, the prophet, decide he doesn't want anything to do with what God has told him to do. He is not going to go where God has told him to go. If you don't know Old Testament geography, that's okay. I don't either. All you need to know is that Nineveh was to the east, and Tarshish was very much to the west of where Jonah was. So he wasn't just not going where God wanted him to go. He was actively going in another direction. And already we're presented with these questions. Jonah, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You're a prophet. You're a man of God. Why are you not doing what God has told you to do? And thankfully, we do get those answers, but they come a little later. Let's continue the story. We read that as the ship is out on the sea, a terrible storm hits. It's to the point where the sailors are saying, we are going to die. We're going to lose our lives. They begin to toss anything and everything they can overboard, hoping the ship will stay afloat. And eventually they decide to cast lots to figure out why this evil is befalling them. This is a ancient practice where people believe they could discern truth. They thought that the gods and the spirits would reveal things to them based off of uh, this action of casting lots. So similar to maybe flipping a coin or, or rolling dice, they believed that the gods would speak through that and they could interpret it. So the lots fall on Jonah, and picking up in verse 8, we see that they said to him, tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Pauls, Jonah, how are you saying this right now? How are you sitting here making this declaration that you fear the Lord who made everything? As if you're this faithful, obedient servant when you're actively running from his commands. Remember, Jonah, why are you in this situation in the first place in this storm? Because you're, be you're being disobedient. You're running away. But before we can be too quick to judge Jonah, we have to first ask ourselves, how many times is that us? How many times do we... Proclaim to be faithfully and fearfully following the Lord while simultaneously engaged in disobedience. We've just started and already uh, the book is giving us a, a mirror, a mirror that we can look into and examine ourselves and ask, do, do we do this? Do I go to church on Sunday morning and, and speak about God's love before 
going out to eat and tearing down my server with my words for being too slow? Do I do this? Do I proclaim to love the word of God while simultaneously never picking it up off of my shelf and just sits there collecting dust? Do my actions align with my words or am I like Jonah claiming to have fear and respect, reverence, love, awe for a God whose presence I would rather flee from? These are some penetrating questions that already we have to ask ourselves, but don't worry, there's going to be more later. Uh, We'll just put our little metaphorical mirror in our pockets for now and keep reading. After Jonah responds, the men are terrified. They ask, what do we do? Uh, How can we appease this God that you tell us about who made the heavens and the earth? How can we avoid this fate? And here we get to the part that everybody knows. In verse 12, Jonah says to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they cannot, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Don't hold it against us, God. Don't lay on us innocent blood, for you have done as it's pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord. They offered sacrifices to him. And as for Jonah, we see that a great fish swallows him, and he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. While Jonah may have been trying to run, at least he recognizes when enough is enough. He says, yes, guys, this is, this is my fault. Uh, throw me overboard. Uh, the storm will stop. That's what they do. And as he's sitting in the belly of the fish, uh, Jonah has time for some self-reflection. And, I mean, let's be honest, if you're inside the, the stomach of a fish, what else are you really going to do? So he sits there, he's thinking about his actions, he's praying, and that's what chapter 2 is. The entirety of it is essentially a prayer to God from inside the fish. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol is a Hebrew word. It refers to the land of the dead. And so Jonah is saying, I was distressed. When I was thrown overboard, I'm in the sea. I was distressed. I was this close to dying. I was this close to entering the land of the dead. And I called out and you heard me. As he continues his prayers, he uses some descriptive words and and phrases of what he felt and experienced in the water. He says, the waters had closed in over him. The depths of the oceans had surrounded him. Seaweed entangled him. His life was fainting away. In the midst of all that, on, on the verge of death, probably about to drown in the middle of the sea, he prays. He cries out to the very God whose presence he had been fleeing from. And God responds. Again, as verse 1 says, God heard his voice. That's the kind of God that we serve, a God who can look at a disobedient prophet and say, you know what, Jonah, you were actively choosing to ignore my commands. You were choosing to flee from my presence, but it's okay. You're calling out to me now, and I'll forgive you. I will respond. I will save you. It's pretty nice to know that God doesn't have the same mindset when it comes to judgment as most of us. I know if I was God and Jonah did that to me, I'd be like, hey, the waves can have him. Like, I'm not saving him. Figure it out yourself. But thankfully, 
God's not sitting in heaven with his clipboard, marking down mistake after mistake, waiting for us to step too far. Now, don't get me wrong. God is a just God. Scripture shows us this time and time again. He hates sin, and it will be dealt with, but he also is a God full of grace. And right here, as Jonah, I saved, we get a glimpse of this grace that God likes to show. And I think this is another chance for us to examine ourselves, to ask the question, hey, are we doing this? Are, are we rebelliously running from God? And maybe if we are, maybe we can begin to think, I'm too far gone at this point. He's not going to forgive me. Uh, you know, God wanted me to do this. He told me to do this. Or I, I knew what the right thing was, and I didn't do it. I went the other way. Why would he forgive me? And yet we see right here that God is in the forgiving business. He has been for some time, and he's actually pretty good at it. And Jonah concludes his prayer in the fish by making this statement. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. He says, God is a God of, of mercy and grace. When it comes to these things, God is in complete control, and he has enough to go around. Jonah declares this. He's so excited. He's so happy. We'll continue with the story. We find that this is a pretty humbling experience for Jonah. As he sits in the belly of the fish and he talks to the Lord, he decides, I'm going to stop running. I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to follow the commands. I'm going to head to Nineveh. And so at the end of chapter 2, he spit up. And in chapter 3, we read this in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was, excuse me, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So Jonah began to go into the city, and after going a day's journey, he called out 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. We didn't get to see the message that God was telling Jonah to proclaim the first time, but we see it here. It's a message of judgment. Jonah's obedient. He goes to Nineveh. He begins to speak, and he says, your city is going to be destroyed. It's going to be overthrown. This is the same wording that God or the, the authors of the Bible use when referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah's saying, hey, in, in a little bit of time, your city is going to be wiped off the map, basically. I imagine myself in downtown Wilmington, maybe eating ice cream at Boombalati's, and I can picture this crazy-looking man, maybe disheveled hair, like burn marks on his skin from fish acid, coming up saying, in about a month's time, Wilmington's going to be destroyed. I would think he was crazy. I would assume that there were probably some added ingredients in his baked goods. But thankfully, the Ninevites are not as skeptical as perhaps I would be. They take Jonah's word seriously. Reading in verse 5, we see the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is the reaction to Jonah's message. And similar to casting lots, this sitting in ashes, putting on sackcloth, we don't do that anymore. But it's an ancient practice that represents grief and humility. It's mourning. These are the people of Nineveh saying, we're sorry, God. Please spare us. When I was in first grade, uh, the punishment system involved the moving of sticks. There were three sections on 
the stick board, green, yellow, and red. And at the beginning of the day, everyone's stick, they had an individual popsicle stick, uh, would start in the green section. If you were a little mischievous throughout the day, you would have to move your stick to yellow. And if you continued to act up, you would eventually move your stick to red. If your stick was in yellow, then you may lose five minutes of time at recess. If it was in red, you might get a call home. Well, not doing your homework was one cause for getting a stick moved. And I remember there were times where I did not do my homework. I know, surprise, I acted up as well. Uh, but I go into class one day, I, I haven't done my homework, and I just immediately move my stick. I move it because I know, hey, I, I've done wrong. And so I go to my teacher, and I'm like, hey, Miss Gray, I, I moved my stick because I, I didn't do my homework, and I know that was wrong, and I'm sorry. And she says, you know what, Perry, because you were honest, because you admitted this, it's okay. Uh, put your stick back at green, you're fine. And that's what the people of Nineveh are hoping for here. Uh, by admitting their wrongdoing, by going before God and, and mourning, they're hoping that God will forgive them. They don't just sit in ashes, they even have a fast. We see in verse 7 that the king issues a proclamation. He says, hey, don't let uh, our, our, any men, don't let any animals, nobody have food or water. Uh, spend this time contemplating, asking to be saved, asking for forgiveness. And you may be able to guess what happened. We got a glimpse of it earlier. With Jonah, the Lord spares them. The Lord shows mercy. Verse 10 tells us when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Once again, we see him acting differently than perhaps how many of us would have acted. Again, I can already picture myself, if I'm God and I am looking at the city of wicked people, I'm dropping fireballs. Like, they're not getting a chance to, to be spared. And yet here, um, that's, not how, that's not how God responds. He shows mercy. He relents. Now, while I may have done something different if I were God, I'm pretty sure that if I were Jonah, I wouldn't complain about God's choices, like I would just accept it. But Jonah must not have gotten that memo, because in the final chapter, we see his response to God, and he starts arguing with God about this. He's not very happy. In the final chapter, we see in verse 1, that this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee. This is why I ran away. Because I knew that you are a gracious God. You are merciful. You're slow to anger. And I, I love this because Jonah is saying all these good, positive qualities that we always get excited about in church. Like, woo, God loves us. But he's saying it in this angry voice. Always cracks me up. But he says, you're slow to anger and you abound in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. God, please take my life from me. It would be better for me to die than to live. And there it is. The reason for Jonah's rebellion, the reason that Jonah ran away. Remember those questions we asked earlier, why are you doing this, Jonah? Now we see why. Because Jonah knew that if they were to ask for forgiveness, God would forgive the people of Nineveh. And the last thing he wanted was to see his enemies be forgiven, his enemies be shown grace. And yes, I use the word enemies on purpose because Nineveh, was actually the capital of the Assyrian Empire. If you're not familiar, 
the Assyrians were at war with Israel for years. They were also known to be very, very brutal people. Uh, One example of this, in war with their captives, they would often, as a method of torture, skin their captives alive. They would just fillet them. They would just cut their skin off just to cause pain. That's how cruel and brutal these people are. And they've been fighting with Israel. So Jonah perhaps knows people. Perhaps he has friends or family who have been tortured, who have been killed by these people. So he doesn't want them to be forgiven. He desires their destruction. He doesn't want them to receive God's grace. And I can imagine him arguing like, really, God? What happened to justice? These are wicked people. You know all these awful things that they've done? Not only to others, but to your chosen people? Are they just going to be able to get away with it? Are you serious? But if we go back just two chapters, isn't that exactly what happened with Jonah? Don't we see this disobedient prophet being saved? And he cries out, salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember that one at the end of his prayer? He said, I serve a God who saves, a God who shows grace. Yes, I love that. But the moment this same grace is shown to his enemies, well, Jonah begins to sing a different tune. So once again, let's pull out our our metaphorical mirrors and look in and examine, ask ourselves, how often is that us? How often do we judge and condemn those around us with no desire for them to receive grace, all while gladly accepting it for ourselves? I want God's forgiveness. I want his mercy. I want his grace. And I want it for my friends and my family. But the moment that there's somebody who I deem unworthy, the moment they get shown grace, ooh, maybe I get a little bothered. When that guy shows up to church or when that girl shows up to church, ooh, maybe it doesn't always sit right with me. It's easy for Christians today to have this same mindset as Jonah wanting to tell God who he can and who he can't show his grace to. Maybe you can think of some people in your life who are sort of like that, those people you would rather avoid, that everyone knows about, and you can sort of whisper in hushed tones, hey, did you, did you hear about what they did last? People who you think, yeah, they'll, they'll never be forgiven. They're too far gone. But when we have thoughts like that, when we judge people like that, we're being just like Jonah trying to pick and choose. You're worthy, you're worthy, you're unworthy of grace. You're worthy, you're unworthy to be forgiven. God must not really be the biggest fan of this because he calls Jonah out. He says, Jonah, are you serious right now? Do you really have a right to be this angry? Do you really have a right to be this mad? Jonah doesn't respond, and so God's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to teach you a little little lesson. I'm going to use a plant to teach you this. Picking up in verse 6. This is what God does. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I I do well to be angry. Yes, I have a right to be mad. I'm mad enough, I want to die. 
And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in the night. It perished in the night. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and a lot of animals? And that's it. That's the end of the book. We don't get to see what Jonah says back. There's nothing else. That's Jonah. Pastor Chris likes to clap at this point, like, whoa, you finished another, you finished another uh, book of the Minor Prophet, so good job, give it up. You can leave and tell people we went through a whole book today. But that's the end. But God's trying to teach Jonah something here. He says, Jonah, this plant elicited so much emotion from you. You're living on cloud nine, you're so happy, and then you're depressed to the point you want to lose your life. It caused so much emotion in you, and yet you didn't do anything for it. You weren't the one who planted it. You didn't water it. You didn't make it grow. You didn't even make it die. Jonah, everything isn't about you. Everything isn't about your comfort, your discomfort, what makes you happy. You're not the one running the universe. You can't make plants grow. You don't get to decide who gets grace and who doesn't get grace. God says, Jonah, this is a city of 120,000 people. Don't you think they matter to me? That's a bush, and it matters to you. Don't you think that these people matter to me? The fact is, guys, we can sometimes forget that. But we can get so caught up in, in our view of others while God is in heaven asking, don't you think they matter to me? Don't you think she matters to me? Don't you think he matters to me? And so really, the, the whole key idea here of this book is God saying, hey, people matter to me. Your, your enemies, the people you don't like, the people that you want to point out and say, nope, he doesn't get your grace, God. Nope, he doesn't. He matters to me. They matter to me. I wonder what our relationships with others would look like if instead of always wanting payback for wrongdoing, if if instead of always wanting revenge, even though sometimes we just call it justice, instead of wishing ill will on our enemies and the people who cut us off in traffic, if instead of pridefully judging others for sin, and if instead of all that, what if we tried to imitate the love and the grace that God shows, the love and the grace that reaches out to disobedient prophets who are running away and says, it's okay, I'll save you. And the love and the grace that gets shown to city fools of people who like to cut other people's skin off. That same love and grace. What if we had that in our relationships? This is the same love that, as Romans 5.8 tells us, would send Christ to die for us, even while we were sinners. If this is a love that we are so willing to accept with open arms and to sing about on Sunday mornings and and preach about on Sunday mornings, then this should be a love that we're ready to share with those around us, to take into the darkness and to share like it's light. Uh, Pastor Chris always likes to present a challenge at the end of the week, and so I have to follow in his footsteps and and do the same thing. I challenge you as you you go out today, uh, as you're out this week, As you encounter people, maybe you know them, maybe you don't know them, to remind yourself, they matter to God. No matter what I think of them, no matter what I know that they've done, even if they're my enemy, 
Even if they, they've made me mad before, they've crossed me, they've hurt me, they matter to God. And maybe, yes, yeah, sometimes I want to get back at them. I want some justice. I, I want them to receive a penalty. They matter to God. Let's remember that as we leave here today. Let's pray.